the uh, conspiracy to kill Paul is presented to us by Luke uh, in such a manner as to impress us, um, to impress us with the seriousness of this threat against Paul's life. And the impressiveness of this threat is communicated to us in three ways. Firstly, more than 40 men were involved in this plot. That's a considerable number. Now, I'm not sure if Luke intends to be symbolic or not, but 40 is a symbolic number in the Bible. It's the number that is symbolic of sufficiency, of enough. Uh, If Luke is rounding down the number of men involved in this plot in order to be symbolic, then the symbolism here is that this is a sufficient number. This is enough men to get the job done. Uh, this substantial number, 40, more than 40, would presumably be necessary because even if they ambushed Paul in the closed, narrow streets of Jerusalem, there'd be guards with Paul who had to be overcome at the cost, they imagine, of many of their own lives. Uh, so they are prepared to be killed and they are prepared to kill uh, in order to rid the earth of this man who they think is so offensive to God. And it is a continuingly sad reflection on humanity that actually human beings, we as a species, we we easily convince ourselves that we can serve God by murdering people as though he can't do the job himself. This is by no means only a Jewish phenomenon or a Middle Eastern phenomenon. Hindus, Buddhists, Even Buddhist monks have been known to commit murder when their cultural identity was under threat. And and Christians too. Um, There is a group currently of Christians in the United States who believe that killing doctors, uh, those who work in abortion clinics, that killing doctors can be justified. Leaving aside for today the complexity of that particular issue, one thing actually is plain, and that is that Jesus will not tolerate terrorism in his name. Nevertheless, it is frightening how easily we convince ourselves that murdering people is a good way to serve God. And human beings, as human beings, we do this with astonishing regularity. I point this out because it's relevant both to our thinking about the text as well as to thinking about our own lives today. And it's relevant because Jesus assures us that ministry done with the sword, that those who minister by the sword will die by the sword. He's very clear about that. But that's our first impressive thing. Forty zealots ready to kill and be killed by combat or starvation to get the job done. That's that's an impressive number. Secondly, they bound themselves with an oath. Now, the worldview of the Bible is that human words have spiritual power. Curses, blessings, promises, oaths. Our contemporary culture, of course, poo-poos this idea as superstitious nonsense. So then, of course, in secular culture, there's a lot of freedom to say whatever you want to say. And people say things like, when you get home, I'm going to kill you. And most of the time, actually, they don't mean that. Um, 
But if it's true that human beings are created in the image of God as God's authorized spiritual and physical representatives on earth, then of course our words have spiritual power. And of course God is entirely right to judge us with respect to the words that come out of our mouths. We are his representatives. Uh, To make a promise is to enslave yourself to someone else. To make an oath is to enslave yourself to your own word. And the New Testament warns us against swearing an oath at all. Uh, Jesus says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, an oath then, coming from the evil one, there is real destructive spiritual power at work in an oath. Binding themselves with an oath, these 40 men have enslaved themselves and the whole endeavor has satanic origin and satanic power. That's the second detail. They bound themselves with an oath. The third uh, detail, and it's a detail we actually hear three times, is that they fasted. Nil by mouth till the job was done. And again, there is real spiritual power in fasting. The Bible assumes this without explaining this. I'm deeply convinced of it, as I know that many of you are too. There is real spiritual power in fasting. I don't understand it. I just know it's true. There is a power in and authority in prayer and fasting that is distinct from and different to prayer without fasting. So then, in three different ways, this plot against Paul stands as a significant threat against his life. Yet nevertheless, it is equally quickly made to look utterly ridiculous. And that's because human beings, generally speaking, are absolutely useless when it comes to keeping secrets. I mean, we just can't do it. And the more people involved, the faster the secret's out. And so one of the plot's strengths, the large number of men involved, turns out to be its critical weakness. The plan depended upon secrecy for it to work, and yet with dozens of people knowing about it, and with at least 40 households now having somebody who suddenly refuses to eat and drink, it doesn't surprise us that Paul immediately gets wind of it. We didn't know that Paul had a sister, or indeed that she lived in Jerusalem, or a nephew for that matter. Clearly, Paul's family of origin is of no interest whatsoever to Luke, except that it's relevant to the story of what Jesus is doing for and in and through Paul. So suddenly we find out he has a nephew. This young man, who actually clearly is a child, um, that's okay, the Greek word allows uh, for this possibility, Um, this boy is very brave. He is so young that the commander leads him by the hand. Feels it necessary to point out, you shouldn't tell others that you've told me this. This boy. And so then, it is a child who undoes the conspiracy. It is a child who acts heroically and courageously, endangering his own life in order to save his uncle. His uncle, uh, by the way, is yet to write some of his most famous works, uh, including his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Colossians. 
Um, so actually, if, if, if you're a fan of Paul and his works and you like those three letters, then actually you need to thank this, this boy too. We, we need to thank this, this boy for what he did, for his service to us as well as to Paul. Well, that God chose one child to defeat 40 fasting, fighting men who have bound themselves with an oath is beautifully ironic. God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Another person who looks really good, maybe, maybe strangely good in this account, is uh, the commander, Claudius Lysias. And that's worth noting. Um, all through Luke's gospel and his book of Acts, Roman authorities are always presented in a favorable light. Luke's presentation of Pontius Pilate is by far the most sympathetic of, of all the four presentations in the Gospels. Luke is kindest on Pontius Pilate. And all through the book of Acts, uh, Roman authorities act rationally, rationally and reasonably. Um, one reason for this agenda of, of Luke's may simply be as a literary foil uh, in order to contrast with the Jews who almost universally behave badly abandoning their own traditions of justice and righteousness in the face of Paul and his gospel of grace. Um, a second reason for Luke's agenda of making the Romans look good is that Luke is writing at a time of intense Jewish persecution of the Christian church. But Roman persecution of the Christian church is already on the horizon. In the face of that, Luke is recording the fact that the Roman authorities have already a long track record of protecting Christians from false and unjust persecution. Roman traditions of justice and righteousness ought to vouchsafe that this will continue. Any Roman reader of Luke's Gospel or of Luke's Book of Acts would hear straight from Roman leaders in positions of authority, the leaders of this new Christian movement, have done nothing wrong that deserves death or imprisonment. So uh, the commander's response is reported to us um, as he responds to the plot. Uh, he, he looks conscientious and careful. He takes the threat seriously and he acts immediately. A detachment of 200 soldiers, a cavalry 70 strong, and 200 spearmen that might sound like overkill, but this is a highly volatile region, um, politically unstable, and an ambush by 40 men, well positioned in the dimly lit tight streets of Jerusalem, that would be a considerable threat, and it could easily get out of hand. So, and, and snowball. Uh, so, so, Claudius Lysias, he's not just interested in preserving the life of one Roman citizen, he's also wanting to maintain the peace and make sure this thing doesn't get out of hand. So that's a little bit about the story that we've read, um, filling in some details. However, what I think is most important about this story is that we read the story of the conspiracy in the light of verse 11. Verse 11 reads, The following night... The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
So we know, even before we hear about the conspiracy, we know this thing can never work. The threat against Paul's life in its context looks urgent and impressive, but seen in the light of the sovereignty of Christ, we see that actually it's ridiculous. And that's the thing about evil, and it's the thing about human evil. When we focus on it, it can look really, really scary. But seen in the light of the sovereignty of Christ, it will always be shown to be ridiculous. Um, three times in the Bible, God is recorded as laughing. Does anyone know where God laughs in the Bible? Psalm 2. Thank you, yes. And the other two occasions are also in the Psalms. God laughs three times in the Psalms. What makes God laugh? Human evil. Plots to derail his plans. It's a joke. Uh, God is so powerful. Well, Paul knows that Jesus is with him and that nothing can prevent him now from getting to Rome and testifying there also. And I'm sure that as Jesus said to him, take courage, I'm sure that as that word, as the Lord Jesus, as, as God spoke that word, Paul received courage in his heart and he knew that he was safe. Interestingly though, um, that knowledge didn't move Paul into some kind of spiritualized fatalism. When his nephew told him about the plot in verse 18, Paul didn't respond by saying, oh, don't worry, Jesus is Lord, nothing can happen to me. No, 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 actually he acted, didn't he? He made sure that the information made it to the Roman commander who, under God, was charged with his physical protection. In other words, Paul, the Christian, trusts that the protection of God will be manifest through the God-given agency of the state. In Jesus' words in verse 11, they also remind us of God's will, God's agenda for Paul's life. Paul has been saved by grace in order to do good works prepared in advance for him to do. And those good works are for him to be a witness, a witness to Jesus Christ, a chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. God's will for Paul's life is crystal clear. But there are more things in Jesus' words that we should notice. Uh, some of the things that I notice are some of the things that Jesus could have said but didn't. One of the things that Jesus could have said but didn't was, take courage, you must testify about me in Rome, but not like how you testified about me in Jerusalem. No, 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 this time I want results. Paul did testify in Jerusalem in front of hundreds, possibly thousands of people, but there weren't any conversions. There were no baptisms. Zero people added to the number of those being saved. Now, the book of Acts starts with the apostle Peter witnessing in front of crowds in Jerusalem and thousands being added daily to the number of those being saved. And then Paul, likewise, all around the Mediterranean world, there's conversions, baptisms, churches being planted. But actually, in the book of Acts, the last time we heard of anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ was way back in chapter 18. And in fact, from chapter 18 onwards, we don't hear of anyone coming to faith in Jesus Christ anyone further. 
It's not that they didn't happen, it's just we don't hear about them. There are no conversions in the last 10 chapters of the book of Acts. What we see is that Paul, Paul is not being called to be successful. He is not being called to be significant. He is simply being called to be faithful and to trust. Nor is Paul to judge his own success or significance. He can't. What he can do is simply keep on trusting Jesus and to give others what he has been given, all that he has seen and heard and understood about Jesus of Nazareth. Just keep on being faithful. But it might raise for us the question, why does God want people to hear the gospel about Jesus if they're not going to respond to it with faith and repentance? Well, Paul is sowing seed, not knowing if or when or in whom it will germinate and bear fruit. But what's important uh, is that the gospel is preached and that everyone hears it because it is a message of salvation for those who believe. Just Sorry, just wondering why my notes are blurry. Oh, that's better. It is a message of salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation from what? Well, salvation from judgment. From God's judgment. And actually, God's judgment on the city of Jerusalem that Jesus prophesied about, it's actually, it's not far away with respect to the events of our text today. It's only 10 or so years away. And on that day, only those who've heard about Jesus, who trust Jesus and who obey his word, only those people will be saved. The rest will perish by the Roman sword. As the Romans destroy Jerusalem in AD 70, one of the worst, most thorough destructions of a people, most thorough destructions of a city ever recorded in history, according to the historians. So what is it that they, what is it that they needed to hear? What is it that they needed to obey specifically for that day? Well, Jesus, Jesus said, when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. It's absolutely time critical. Um, those who did that uh, escaped. Those who didn't died by Roman sword. Um, likewise, for us as Christians with Paul, in every place and at all times, we are to stand as a witness to Jesus and his resurrection. Sometimes we'll live in times when vast numbers of people listen and hear and respond with faith and repentance. Sometimes we'll live in times when we're just ignored. And sometimes we'll live in times and in places where we are persecuted for the gospel of grace. But the important thing is that we continue to testify, that we live each day as a witness in the things that we do, in the things that we say, in the priorities of our lives, um, articulate and inarticulate, that we stand as a witness to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And... There's one last thing that Jesus could have said to Paul, but didn't. Standing near to Paul in the middle of the night in that prison cell in the Antonia barracks in Jerusalem, 
Jesus could have said, Hang in there, buddy. I'm doing my best to get you out. Any day now, I promise. We actually might find it deeply scandalous, hard to believe, hard to reconcile with our picture of God. We might find it scandalous that actually Jesus is doing nothing about getting Paul out of jail. For a first century reader, this would have been even more difficult to understand for us because they knew the horrors and the humiliations of being detained, of being incarcerated at that time. And for Paul, whether or not he was physically comfortable or uncomfortable, the difficulty of his position is that it was incredibly humiliating to be in chains. And in an honor-shame culture, this utter shame has real, material, social, economic horrors attached to it. Paul is losing friends. Um, There are people who will now say, I don't know Paul. And in this honor-shame culture, this incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-educated, godly man, so used to advancing faster than his peers, so used to being deferred to and respected and listened to, so used to being held in a position of authority and respect, he is now suffering one of the greatest humiliations a person could suffer at that time, the shame of imprisonment. We'd all have understood if he'd prayed, God, I can't believe you're letting this happen to me. And that's a sentiment, that's a prayer. Um, I've prayed it dozens of times. I've heard it from others dozens of times. It's a sentiment, it's a prayer. Every single one of us prays it from time to time. I can't believe you're letting this happen to me. But Jesus has no intention of saving Paul from that particular form of suffering. Paul, the prisoner, is free to do everything Jesus wants him to do without being free. This raises uh, for me, uh, for us, I think, the question, what's your prison? Um, What is it in your life that you can't escape? What are the circumstances in your life right now that you'd change in a heartbeat if you could? That God just doesn't seem to be simply listening, hearing, or acting upon. That prompts you to pray, God, I can't believe you're letting me go through this. Interestingly, both Jesus and Paul are extremely familiar with suffering. And although neither of them ever want it, so too, likewise, they never live in fear of it. Fear not, for I am with you. Now, heaven forbid that you should hear me make light of your suffering, but I suspect that Jesus might be saying to us today, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. God has a plan for our lives. He has good works prepared in advance for each one of us to do. And we are free to do them. As we respond with trust and faith, he'll kick open the doors that need to be opened and he'll remove any obstacle that needs to be removed. For he is mindful of the welfare of his servants. And even though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly 
on the humble. And even though we walk in the midst of trouble, he preserves our lives. Lord, you, you, Lord Jesus, stretch out your hand against the anger of my enemies. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Amen.